0: What a joy to be together today, amen? We are starting a new series today, coming out of Easter, called Glory. We're going to take, uh, and no, it's, it's not a history of the American flag. That is what my daughter asked me when I was prepping it this week, because she hit that in her American history class, which is pretty cute. Uh, no, it's not that. We're, we're, we're going to take a few weeks and talk about the glory of God and why that doctrine is important. And I know that may seem like kind of an abstract of like, that seems, seems like an interesting doctrine to focus on, right? Like, what's the, what's the practicality there? But I think, I think God has something really important for us, for our church life in this. In his book on missions, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper has this, this famous line where he says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Where he essentially says, if people knew who God was, if they beheld his glory as it actually was, missions would cease to exist. And then the actual chief end of missions is for people to see his glory, that they might worship him, right? There's a group of missionaries at the International Mission Board who took this to heart in 2003, a group of five different missionaries from some churches around North America really focused in on this idea The glory the the world needs the glory of God. The answer to the problem of the human heart is experience of the glory of God. And in the best way they knew how to contextualize it at this time, this group uh, jumped into the heart of the war zone in Iraq and began preaching the gospel uh, to displaced peoples and refugees, putting together feeding programs, bringing their own, own medical expertise, clean water, those sorts of things. Uh, And in in March 15th of 2004, while driving between two of these camps with some clean water, they were actually ambushed and murdered, martyred on the mission field. Um, Out of the five, one survived with, uh, after receiving, I think she received like 27 gunshot wounds or something insane like that. It was horrific, right? One of these missionaries was a, a single lady named Karen Watson, and knowing that she was stepping into a war zone to preach the gospel and not having a much in the way of family back home, she actually wrote a letter to her pastors and asked them to keep it and said, please only open this in the event of my death on the mission field. And so you go back and read it. It's published on the IMB's website and all their, their information on martyrs and things like that. But there's this line in her, in her letter that I think is so telling for us. And I think driving at what we're getting at in terms of why a series like this is important. She says, you know, to suffer for the gospel is expected, but his glory is our reward. And then she repeats that. His glory, my reward. His glory, my reward. This is the aim, this is the reason someone would step on a plane and fly into the middle of a war zone to go deliver medical supplies and food and water and share the story of the gospel. It's not because that's a great plan to advance your life and career, right? It's not because that's the most efficient way to make yourself more happy, more comfortable, more joyful in life. It's to the glory of God, that his glory is the end to which a life is bent. It's no secret that in North America, uh, the church has a bit of an image problem I don't know if you've noticed this over the last few years, right? But increasingly, the, the, just the, the go-to subconscious immediate reaction that Americans have toward Christianity, toward the church specifically, is increasingly negative. If you do research by generation, by the way, it gets worse and worse, the younger an American is, if you're talking about millennials, my generation or Generation Z, the majority, the vast majority of them, their, their gut reactions to the concept of Christianity, to the idea of the church, especially the evangelical church, are inherently negative. And by the way, like we we, we earned some of that, right? whether it's connections to uh, leaders and abuse and financial mishandling or sex abuse and child abuse, right? Real things that are happening in our time and our culture. Whether it's the intense marriage of a lot of conservative evangelical Christianity to conservative American politics, which is distasteful to some, or even just the way Christian ethics... Right? Maybe Christian sexual ethics and things like that are just out of vogue in our culture, right? When it gets down to it, Christianity in our time, in our context, even though we live in a place and a time and amongst the people that gives a just historically unprecedented amount of freedom around religious practice, we still live in a place where the the cultural assumptions about our faith are increasingly negative. And here's the deal, guys as a follower of Jesus, that should matter to you. It should matter to you. And maybe not for the reasons we immediately think. It, it shouldn't matter to us because we want to get a one-up on the culture war or because we need, want and need to somehow preserve the privileged status that, that religious experience experiences in our, in our society, right? It, it's, not, it's not that it should matter to us because we need to preserve this certain way of life. All of those things are good and important and worthy considerations. The reason this should matter to us primarily is that when the church is frowned upon, the glory of Jesus is besmirched. That's a good word, isn't it? (laughs) When, When this is the cultural understanding of the church, the glory of God the most important thing, right? The answer to the need of the human heart is clouded. It's distracted. What a horrible thing. That should matter to us. It should matter to us because when the glory of God is clouded, it creates barriers, distractions from people engaging the gospel. The lost who are in desperate need of the gospel and those who are in Christ, who are in desperate need of being sustained by the gospel. When the glory of God God is not on full display, the needs of the human heart aren't being met. Because at the end of the day, his glory is our reward. It's what our heart needs, what our heart longs for. We are made for the glory of God. And by the way, we can participate in the glory of God. We can share the glory of God with the world. You, beloved, were made for glory. That's a big sentence, but there's truth to that. You were made for glory, and not just any cheap glory will do. It's the glory of God that satisfies the human heart, that satisfies your heart. So, For today, we're going to be in Exodus 33, if you guys want to go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you today, we have house Bibles scattered throughout the room. Just kind of look under the chairs in front of you, you'll find one. By the way, we really believe in the importance of access to God's Word, so if you're here today and you don't own a Bible, I would encourage you to grab one of those house Bibles and just take it home. Exodus 33, as you guys turn there, I'm going to catch us up on the story here. We're jumping into a narrative and a pretty, pretty dense narrative at that. So I want to make sure we're kind of all on the same page going into this. So, so here's, here's the Exodus story kind of in a nutshell, catching us up to where we're at. Exodus opens with God's chosen people, his covenant people, Israel, being taken into slavery in Egypt. And this is a slow process over multiple generations of just increasingly removal of freedoms and ostracization and all these different things that results in God's people being just complete, unjust, evil bondage of slavery to the nation of Egypt. And this lasts for generations as these people are misused, as they cry out to God saying, why are you letting this happen? Like, bring us freedom, free us from this. Aren't aren't we your people? Aren't you our God? Well, Exodus tells the story of how God does interview that he actually steps into human history to free his people from bondage. He, this begins with him speaking supernaturally to this prophet named Moses. God appears to him in the form of this burning bush and says, I have set you aside for this specific task to free my people. And so Moses, along with his brother Aaron, they go to, Is, or they go to Egypt, they go to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and they just say, hey, here's the deal. Uh, God doesn't want you to enslave his people, so let them go or else. And you can imagine, right, like one of the most powerful kings in human history on his throne, surrounded by his guards, looking at these two shepherds who are the children of slaves going, hey, God said you have to let us go or else. <laughs> and he just goes, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's how this is going down. No, that's, that's not a thing we're going to do. And then Exodus tells the story of God bringing about these increasingly horrific plagues upon Egypt. With each passing attempt, God says, let my people go or else it will go badly for you. And Pharaoh says, no, we're not going to do that. You don't have authority over me. I don't care about your God. And God brings about horror on Egypt. And by the way, if you go through each of the plagues, each one is specifically set up not only to just decimate Egypt like financially, but specifically to blaspheme the Egyptian pantheon each plague that God brings upon Egypt speaks into a specific area of Egyptian theology and just destroys it. As God systematically shows, no, I have authority over this. I have authority over this. I have it. You keep thinking you have, that's not how this works. And it culminates in God sending his angel of death who kill all the firstborn in Egypt, including Pharaoh's son himself. And in Egyptian theology, Pharaoh is considered a God and his son is the son of a God. And for Yahweh to come along and just say, nope, I control that, just crushes the heart of Egypt. And so finally they relent and they let God's people go. But God is not done, even even in this moment of freedom and jubilee, God is not done intervening on history and caring for his people. Yahweh manifests himself in the form of a massive pillar of fire and smoke and lightning and leads Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness. I mean, imagine that scene. Smoke and lightning and fire descending out of the sky, making a column into the ground and just moving through the desert with hundreds of thousands of people walking behind it being like, this is nuts, where are we going? Once they leave, Egypt says, no, we actually can't withstand the loss of this labor force. And they muster what's left of their army and they chase after Israel. And again, God intervenes. They move the wilderness. He provides food for them. He provides water for them. He leads them along. When Egypt shows up, he parts the Red Sea. He moves, he moves the sea. As the water pile up on itself to create this pathway so that Israel walks through on dry land and as Egypt chases after him, God lets go and the water rushes in and drowns the armies of Egypt and kills Pharaoh. And all this comes together as God leads Israel to the base of this mount, this mountain called Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, depending on where you're reading it in the scripture, leads them to the base of this mountain and this pillar of fire and smoke and lightning that's been following them crashes down on this mountain. And it's this insane picture as lightning and rock and earthquake and all this stuff, the glory of God is manifesting on this mountain. And Israel is terrified, as you would be, right? Terrified. And God speaks to Israel and there's this back and forth where he says, I am your God. I led you out of Egypt. And they're like, yeah, we saw that, (laughs) right? then he says, you will covenant with me. We will live in relationship. I will be your God. You will be my people. You will follow me. You will obey me. I will care for you always. And the people swear to it. Yes, as you say, we will follow you. You will be our God. We will be your people. And God, the the creator God of the universe makes a covenant with these human beings, right? So then Moses goes up on the mountain to work out the details of the covenant. (laughs) They've they've signed the contract, but now they gotta get the specifics worked out. So Moses wanders up into the lightning, the smoke, the fire. And then he's gone for more than a month. He doesn't take any supplies with him, doesn't take any food, doesn't take any water. 40 days, he's gone. And as the time lingers on with this massive, terrifying storm shooting down onto this mountain and Israel just sitting there for days and days and days and days and days, days, eventually people start to go, you know, Moses was really old and he wandered up that mountain by himself and he never came back. And you can see there's like death up there on that mountain, I think he's dead. Which, by the way, totally sensical (laughs) conclusion, right? Like, and so they go to Moses' brother Aaron and they go, hey, uh, Moses is apparently dead and there is a God on that mountain. We gotta figure out, we made a, a covenant with that God. Like, we gotta figure out how to do this thing. And so they do. They all put their gold in, they build a golden calf. They start having this worship ritual and dancing and offering sacrifices. And while Moses is up on the mountain being supernaturally sustained by God, while God is with his own hand writing out his laws on the tablet and describing to Moses exactly how God's people will relate to him, God's people are down at the bottom of the mountain blaspheming those rules, <laughs> right? And God gets pretty upset and he stops and goes, nope, 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 nope. we got to stop this Look what Israel is doing. Go down there and rebuke them. So Moses goes down. He sees Israel's idol worship. He has the 10 commandments with him, right? These tablets of stone that God himself cut out of the stone and wrote upon with his own hand. Moses, in his anger and frustration to Israel, slams them down. They shatter. He yells, he rebukes Israel. It's just this terrible scene. And when it's all said and done, people are dead. Stuff is burnt up. The covenant is broken. God appears to Moses again and says, these people are so rebellious. They've already destroyed this. We literally haven't left the mountain. They've already destroyed the covenant. I I cannot continue to go with you guys. If I do, if I'm the one that leads you around, I will kill everyone here. (laughs) Which as a parent of three toddlers, I'm like, "Mm, I relate to that, Uh, (laughs) Yahweh. He says, I can't, I can't go with you. I can't, I can't do this. And there's this back and forth between Moses and God about what the relationship with God and Israel is going to look like. And this, this brings us to our text here. I, want, I, I forgot to put this up, but I want to show you this picture really quick. This is a mountain called Willow's Peak uh, that's in modern day Egypt. We don't know exactly where Mount Horeb slash Sinai is, but this is the oldest Christian tradition of what this mountain is. You can look it up, Willow's Peak. It's got uh, one of the oldest functioning Christian churches uh, in history uh, at the base of it. Um, It's from like the second century, uh, which is a pretty old tradition that this is uh, Mount Horeb, and it makes sense for a lot of reasons. But there's other, we just don't know, know. The Bible didn't come with maps originally. We added the maps later, you know, so we don't know that 100%. But I want you to see that to kind of get this this visual in your head of the kind of place we're at as these interactions are happening, right? So our text picks up as God tells Moses, look, you've got to go. You've got to go. We've been sitting at the base of this mountain for a long time. Things aren't going how they should have gone. I've got a promised land set up for you guys. I'll send an angel to guide you, you guys need to go. And picking up in Exodus 33, starting in verse 12, we read this, oh, I'm on the wrong page, hold on. We read this. Moses said to the Lord, look, you have told me, lead this people up, but you have not told me whom you will send with me. You said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. Now, if I indeed have found favor with you, please teach me your ways so that I will know you, so that I may find favor with you. Now consider, consider this nation as your people. And he replied, he being God, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. If your presence does not go, Moses responded to him, don't make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by this from all the other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you have asked, for you have found favor with me, and I do know you by name. Then Moses said, Please, let me see your glory. And he said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name, the Lord, before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he added, you cannot see my face for humans cannot see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on this rock when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. That's kind of a little like the ones you broke. Remember that? You're gonna cut the new ones. Be prepared by morning. Come up on Mount Sinai in the morning and stand before me on the mountaintop. No one may go with you. In fact, no one should be seen anywhere near the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds are not to graze in front of that mountain. Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones. He got up early in the morning, taking the two stone tablets in his hand. He climbed Mount Sinai, just as the Lord had commanded him. Then the Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshiped. Then he said, my Lord, if indeed I have found favor with you, please go with us, even though this is a stiff-necked people. Forgive our iniquity and our sin and accept us as your possession. And the Lord responded, look, I am making a covenant. I'll perform wonders in the presence of all your people that have never been done in the whole earth or in any nation. All the people you live among will see the Lord's work, for what I am doing with you is awe-inspiring. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, church. Father, we ask that you would take these few minutes as we consider this text, a text that, if we're honest, is kind of strange to us. We ask that you would just give give us refreshment, give us clarity. Give us challenge. Lord, give us conviction. And like Moses, we want to be the kind of people who just say, we want to know your ways. We want to know you more intimately. Lord, I pray that you would move us in that direction today, whatever that next step looks like for each of us, God. Move us closer to you. We love you, Jesus. We need you to do this work. So we pray it in your name. Amen. So what's actually going on in this story, right? Like, sometimes when you read the Old Testament text, the wording, the pacing like a lot of it's just awkward and it's easy to kind of lose or miss the narrative. But essentially what we get in this chunk of text is this amazing and strange interaction between God and Moses. Theologically, this is what's called a theophany. If you want to uh, uh, impress your friend's word for the day. A theophany is when God manifests or appears to humans in real space-time, right? Many people, on a side note, use the Old Testament theophany stories to actually critique Christian theology. Because when you read the theophany stories, God seems a little too human, right? Right? It's strange. It's actually, by the way, a good question. I mean, you look at some of these stories and you go, how can God be so angry? How can, he, how can he change his mind? How can he say, this is what I'm gonna do and then change his mind or do something else? How does that work? Those are important questions, by the way, that, that we really shouldn't dismiss. But I think the cool thing is, they're not really like the gotchas that maybe like social media atheists would have you believe they are. They're actually important questions that are pretty easily answered. Consider for a moment, how would the creator God of the universe interact with humans? If he is God, the creator and sustainer of all reality, right? Who sees, who sees into the core of neutron stars, who tells atoms to continue to hold together. How would he interact with humans if he didn't act a little human while doing so? By the way, if you have a dog or a small child, you already know this intuitively, right? This is, this is just how it works. I don't talk, you guys, some of you guys know my dog, Bev, right? Some of you have been knocked over by my dog, Bev. I don't talk to my dog the way I talk to other humans, right? I mean, I may treat her better than I treat some humans, but I don't talk to her that way. And by the way, it would be foolish to watch me talk to my dog and then extrapolate from that the totality of my character, right? That's not a good picture into the complexity of me because I interact with my dog in a way that I hope will be successful in interacting with my dog. If I have a long, drawn out conversation on like, I don't know, the ethical outpourings of season two of Star Trek The Next Generation, like it's not gonna be a terribly fruitful conversation, right? I talk to my dog like you talk to a dog. It's the same with God. We can only know of him what he reveals to us. And apart from Christ, the revelation of God is incredibly limited. So back to our text. Moses, in in the style of this interaction, seemingly reminds God of the necessity of God's connection to Israel and to him. So what I think it's so interesting about this. God kind of puts his foot down and says, you guys are really sinful. If I go with you, I will kill everyone. This, this isn't gonna work. And then Moses comes back and goes, but you, like, but you said we're your people and you're with us. And I, how, how, how is this gonna work? This can't work without you, God. Like you have to go. If you won't go with us, don't send us. How can Israel be known as your people if you're not with them? This is what sets us apart from the rest of the world you are, I mean, you just destroyed Egypt to get us out of there. You can't send us into the desert on our own. Like, we need you. This is what makes Israel, Israel. I love this because this isn't the picture of Moses magically teaching Yahweh about how to get best care for his people. Rather, this is God giving an invitation for Moses to interact with him, to, to grow an intimacy and relationship with him, to know him better, which is what happens. Moses asks to know the ways of God. He said, Don't send us if you don't come with us. And he caps it all off by saying, God, I want to see your glory. Now you know here at this point, God has actually interacted with Moses and the leaders of Israel multiple times. He's spoken to Moses. He's revealed his name to Moses, Yahweh. I am what I am. I will be what I will be. I was what I was. He reveals this sacred name to him. Like Moses has interacted with God, but when they interact, there's always this cloud, smoke, lightning, fire. There's something in between God and his people. Moses, he wants to know what's up. What is Yahweh like that he gets so upset about graven images, right? What is it about this God that, that, that calf pushed him so hard? If he is to be their covenant God and there's not to be any graven images, any idols, Moses wants to know what's up. Who am I actually following? And God denies his request, <laughs> right? No, that won't work, Moses. If you see me, you'll die, <laughs> But here's what we can do. You gotta come up here tomorrow anyway because we gotta fix this thing. So you're gonna get some new tablets. You're gonna bring them up. I'm gonna reinitiate the covenant. I'm gonna re-speak my name, my covenant agreements to you. I'm gonna re-spell out the law to you. And while you are with me, I'm gonna place you over here and I will walk by you unveiled with no smoke, with no fire, with no lightning. I will pass before you but I'm going to have to cover your face. You can't gaze upon me. When I get past you, I'll uncover your face and you can see part of me. You can see not my glory, but you can see my goodness. I I can't give you all of me because it would destroy you, but I'll let you see my goodness. That's what you can handle. So that's what happens? Moses goes up on the mountain. They redo all the work, right? They, they rewrite out the law on the tablets. They get everything established. God reestablishes the covenant. It's not a new covenant. It's simply God going, look, you guys already blew this literally day one. Literally day one, you blew this. But I am a gracious and compassionate God. So we will do this again, do over. And he reinitiates the covenant with his people. And then, and then, he does this amazing thing for Moses. And I, and I, I love this scene, by the way, as, as God passes by Moses, because Moses isn't getting the eye full, right? Like, otherwise you probably would. I don't know if it would be exactly this way, but I think the closest historical recreation of this would be the Indiana Jones scene where the Nazi melts. You know what I'm talking about? That is, he looks in the Ark of the Covenant, right? So it is a glory of God thing. Yeah, there you go. Historical reenactment. Uh, Anyway, God covers his face. He can't see this. And so God speaks to him while he passes by. I am Yahweh. I am who I am. I was who I was. I will be who I will be. All that's encapsulated in the name. This is who I am. I'm good. I'm gracious. I'm loving. I'm actually perfectly, eternally compassionate, but I am also completely just. So I will forgive you we will redo this, but also know that all sin will be paid for. All sin, all sin, will have to give an account. And then he lets his hand off. I think there's something about that aspect of God's nature that's important for God to give to Moses in this moment. I am Perfectly compassionate and perfectly just. I think as humans, we kind of see those ideas as almost like counter. You have to pick one or the other. You're gonna be gracious or you're gonna be just. And God is somehow able to hold both of those things completely and perfectly, not sacrificing one or the other, completely gracious, completely just, right? And he reestablishes the covenant and then they move on. So what are we supposed to do with a scene like this, right? I mean, it's interesting. There's some cool Bible facts in there. But how does a story like this speak into our faith, into our practice and our connection with Jesus and all the stuff we already talked about, right? The image problem of the church and how we understand and interact with God's glory. Well, I think it comes back to this idea that God's glory and and our design are, are integrated. That we're actually designed to integrate into God's glory. I think that's, I think that's what this, this, this story gives us a good picture of. So, so we will ask this question, what the heck is glory, right? Theologian Paul David Tripp gives this really good explanation of it. He says, this is a doctrine and a concept that you can't really put language to. Like most Christian doctrines have a few key verses that kind of let you zone in and go, this is what we're talking about. But, but glory is different because it really just takes up the whole of the Bible. Like the whole of this document speaks to the doctrine of glory and never once speaks to it fully or in a way that's actually satisfying. And the reason is this. Glory, in a general sense, is just sort of this amalgamation of the idea of someone's renown, honor, beauty, value, and majesty. Right? There's a lot going on in there. And when you consider how such an already large idea scales up to an infinite God, it's staggering, right? Human language falls short of a concept that large. So even though the whole of the Bible speaks to God's glory, when you look at the biblical descriptions of God's glory, they're helpful and yet simultaneously fall miserably short of what we're actually talking about. Consider like this text from Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, the whole of that prophecy is about the glory of God. There's a famous verse in Isaiah 40, verse 12. It says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has marked off the size of the heavens with the span of his hand? Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure or weighed the mountains on a balance and the hills on their scale?" That's beautiful, right? Like it gives you these, just these images of the grandness of God. I mean, how much, literally do this. Go to your sink and pour water into the palm of your hand. How much water can you hold in the hollow of your hand, right? And consider Isaiah saying, the God of the universe measures the entirety of the concept of water <laughs> in the hollow of his hand. Not the oceans of earth, water right? That's a lot. It's a big idea. It's beautiful, but it doesn't quite get us there. Our text is helpful because it gives us a good example of this ancient Hebrew word. It's kind of a word picture for God's glory that I think is going to help us wrap our head around some of this. And it's this Hebrew word kabod. And this word is used to mean everything we've already talked about regarding glory. But in a very literal sense, this word kabod is a word picture and it means Weight, heaviness. Something glorious in this image is massive, right? It's huge, it has weight. And so the the infinite glory of an infinite God is a terrifying concept of weight, right? It's a grandness on a scale that language falls short of. God's glory is displayed in part through his design for creation, in fact, and I think this, this part kind of helps connect us here. You and I, in our image-bearing nature, are designed to desire and enjoy glory. And this is gonna come together. Follow me on this. Have you ever noticed the idea that just as a human being, you are drawn to glory, right? There's something about, about oh, I don't know, beauty, grandness. Like you just, have you ever noticed, like to compare that, You've never seen a dog stop to just enjoy a striking sunset, right? Like I take my dog for a walk, and then sometimes I stop, and I just go, dang, it is gorgeous out today. Dog is not concerned about the sunset. She doesn't take in the beauty of the grandeur of the moment. She doesn't have, like, existential experiences, right? There's something about us as humans that God has designed this innate desire for glory in us. We love good stories, worthy heroes. We love expressions of beauty and expressions of majesty. We're drawn to these things because we are designed to be drawn to God himself, right? We're designed to function in the orbit of the glory of God. The problem here is sin. Sin distorts and moves us from being glory connoisseurs to being glory thieves, right? Step back into our Exodus story. Why the heck did they make the golden calf? Have you, ever, have you ever considered that when you think about this story? You think about all the things Israel experienced in those months leading up to that moment, but there can be no doubt in the collective consciousness of Israel that Yahweh is real and powerful, right? They have seen him manifest supernaturally in ways that you and I only dream of. And yet 40 days into hanging out at the mountain, they're like, I guess we'll just make a gold cow statue. That seems nuts, right? Like what, how can you have that dramatic of a shift? I think you'd understand, the calf was their attempt to encapsulate and actually honor Yahweh. They didn't know what they were doing. Moses was gone. He hadn't come back. They very obviously know Yahweh is real. He just talked to them, right? They know that. But they're sitting there going, well, we've got to figure out some way to engage this covenant God. And the best they can come up with is man-made statues and man-made rituals. But here's the problem, guys. God will not allow his creation, things like gold and human creativity, to steal his glory. He will not allow that which he created and sustains to stand in the place only he can stand. The creation is designed to point to the glory of God, not stand in its place. This is what sin does. It distorts our relationship with God, distorts our experience of his glory. Humanity is designed to revel in the glory of God, to bask in it, to enjoy it. But instead, we steal it, we shift, we either try and steal glory for ourselves and elevate our own self or we put created things in the place of the creator. The golden calf is the natural response of sinful humans to the glory of God. That's how sin has distorted this relationship. We don't wait on God's timing. We don't wait on God's design. We try and control and direct life ourselves. And if you're like me at this point, you're probably still kind of just going, Okay, cool, but why does this matter? Like, what's the connection point for us? Why is this such a big deal? Why can't God just chill out about this, right? Like, Israel was trying their best and they messed up. Why is this such a big deal? Well, remember, God is perfectly compassionate and perfectly just. He holds both of these attributes perfectly and simultaneously. His justice and his anger are roused by sin and rebellion, and glory-thieving. His compassion and his grace are roused by our helplessness. And then we would give in to the curse continually. See, God cares about this thieving of his glory because he's just and he knows how his creation was designed. But he also cares about this thieving of his glory because he actually loves us, he actually knows us, he actually knows that this is not how we're supposed to live. This is not what he built us for. We are missing out when we try and usurp God's glory. We're missing out on his design for us. This compassion piece, I think, points us back to just the very nature of God's glory. I wanna give us an analogy that I think will be helpful here, going back to this idea of God's glory as weight. I think for a good analogy for us to kind of think about this is the idea of, of mass and gravity, I know mass is a little different from weight, but but stick with me on this. I don't want to get too boring, and I'm also not a scientist. But you guys know, the greater the mass of something, the greater its gravitational pull, right? The more massive, the more gravity. Earth has enough mass that we stand here. We don't fly off into space while Earth spins around. The sun has enough mass that Earth rotates around it and doesn't fly off into space. There's also this thing called a black hole. I got a picture of one. That's the only picture we've ever taken. Well, I think we took another picture of the same one. That's the only one we've ever identified. You can only see it because of the heat it's giving off because it's sucking in a star right now and giving off this heat as it crushes a star, which is nuts. But uh, a black hole is something that is so massive, its gravity is so intense that even light itself cannot escape it. Light goes to bounce off the black hole, shoots back up, and then goes, and falls back down, it can't get away. That's how intense the gravity of a black hole is. Some black holes, they think, are maybe like, I don't know, 20, 30 times the mass of the sun, but some of the big ones, which have the name, I love this, supermassive black holes, some of the big ones get into the millions, if not billions, the time, the mass of the sun. Think about that for a moment. Compare yourself as a human to the earth compare the earth to the sun, compare the sun to a black hole a billion times its mass, right? That's a lot of gravity. There is a weight to that. There is an intensity to that, right? I want, you think about yourself compared to that. Think about what it might be like. Imagine what it would be like to go get close to one, to go look at it. I imagine on some level that would actually be probably pretty beautiful as you see light distorted and spin around it as it's like getting sucked down inside it or stars getting like, I'm sure there would be a majesty and a beauty to that. But I think inherently, even as we consider that, there's a a little bit of all of us that's going, yeah, but that would also be terrible because we would super die. Like we wouldn't regular die. We would super die, right? That would just be, so you know what? This is a real thing, and this is why scientists are such a gift to humanity. If you fall into a black hole, if you cross the event horizon, you get stretched into a string of singular atoms. You just go, and you get stretched out into a string of atoms. You know what the actual term is for that? I'm not making this up. It is spaghettification. <laughs> Which is just wonderful. Why do I share this? Because the mass of a black hole is a kind, it's, its own kind of glory, right? It's, it's so beyond you that you cannot possibly survive in its presence. It is too much for you. I think this really does give us a great picture of how glory works. We're drawn to forms of glory, but some glory is small, right? You read the Lord of the Rings. You take a nature walk in Castlewood and you have a feeling of transcendence as you engage something beautiful, Right? You know that you are a a part of something bigger than yourself. But sometimes we get a glimpse into glory that is magnitudes of order above us, right? You're out in the desert in the night and you get a glimpse of the Milky Way. Or you see the ocean rolling in for the first time. Or you you get to go look at the Grand Canyon and that feeling of transcendence kicks up a notch and you realize that you are a part of this bigger universe and that you are a very, very, very small part of that universe. And in those moments, right, like even just reality is too much for you. Beloved, the glory of God makes the glory of creation so much scattered dust. It is is incomparable, the gap between the glory of God and the glory of creation. You, as a human being, are dust next to the grandeur of the Grand Canyon, the Atlantic Ocean, the Rocky Mountains. But the oceans, the mountains, the valleys, they are dust compared to the glory of God. So Moses says, God, let me see your glory, please, please. That was like asking to walk on the surface of a super massive black hole. But multiply the danger by infinity. The glory of God is too much for Moses. The glory of God is too much for you. This is why the Bible talks about fearing God, by the way. Because that's terrifying. It's terrifying. Glory is mighty. It's massive. It's beyond us. You cannot withstand it and it's terrifying. But you were also made for it. You're unavoidably drawn to it. You're built for it. Moses longs for intimacy with God because he was made for intimacy with God. But the glory is too much for him. But here's the thing, beloved. It need not be. God did not design it this way from the beginning. See, we were made, we were made to dive deep into the glory of God and to revel in it and to joy the glory of God for all eternity. It is sin, it is rebellion, it is curse that makes his glory deadly to you and I. And God is perfectly just, but he's also perfectly compassionate. So he does not allow that sin, that separation, to have the final word. He will not allow us to be ripped away from his design. So he meets Moses as Moses is able to meet him. He draws Moses as close into his glory as Moses can handle. He surrounds himself with smoke and fire and lightning. He covers his face. He hides the fullness of his glory so that Moses and Israel might know him as much as they are able to in their sin. And that's beautiful and that's kind, but here's the thing, guys, it's not enough. It won't satisfy you. It's not enough. It doesn't get you where you need to go. This lands us, and this is where we're gonna land, Chris, if you wanna come back up. Gets us to the gospel. See, God is not content to let that be the final say on his relationship with his creation. He's not content to let glory thieving, to let layers of separation be what defines his relationship to his people. So God sends himself in the form of a human Jesus comes, lives a perfect life, dies an unjust death, raises from the dead by the power of God, ascends to heaven from which he'll return and restore all things. And it is Christ that tears away the veil, that brushes away the smoke, that moves away all the separation, that puts the glory of God on full display. The author of Colossians says that he makes the invisible God visible. Visible that Christ, by his work on our behalf, doesn't just forgive our sin, he's perfectly compassionate, but he makes us righteous. He's perfectly just. And he blows away the smoke, pushes away the separation, and connects God's people to their creator. When Moses came down from the mountain, he was literally glowing, and it freaked everyone out. So he put this veil on. And every time you would go to talk to God, he would come out of the tent of meeting glowing and free people out. So he put this veil on. This is that text Emma read, right? And so there was this veil, not even between the glory of God and God's people, between the residual, like leftover glory of God and God's people. They couldn't handle it. But Christ, beloved, Christ tears the veil down. He brings you fully into the presence of God, the presence of God that you were designed to orbit around that you were designed to revel in, that you were designed to find life and joy in, beloved. This is why the glory of God is the answer to our culture. This is what every person you know, yourself included, is actually built for. It's what you actually desire. This is what beautiful sunsets and gorgeous books and great relationships give you the littlest glimpse of. They give you the smallest taste of the glory you were actually made for, the glory you actually want. What a gift is the glory of God through Christ. Through Christ, you have access to it. Access to it. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take just, I mean, just a minute, really quickly, we're gonna take a minute and we're gonna pray. And I wanna encourage you, I wanna encourage you to consider your own relationship to the glory of God. And here's why I say that. This is a doctrine that it is so easy for us to just dismiss. It's easy to dismiss it because it's not one we talk about a huge amount. Because It's not clearly defined. It's just spread out through anything and everything. And because, let's be honest, we're all really just far too easily satisfied with lesser glories. So it's easy to just not consider what you're made for. So I want to encourage you just to take a minute Consider the glory of God, consider the grandness, the vastness, the terror of the glory of God and how you're actually made for it. And then we're gonna end as we do by celebrating that. So beloved, take a minute to pray and then we'll come back together for communion.